Good morning. Just want to wish a happy Father's Day to all the fathers in here. I know this is a day of celebration for a lot of us. Just want to acknowledge that it's also not easy for some people who have lost their father or either didn't have a father figure in their life. So no matter where you fall on that spectrum, just know that we see you and we love you. And if you're a father, adopted father, stepfather, we just we see the work that you do with kids, and um, it's just amazing. And so thank you for all of that. My name is Dustin, and I'm on staff here at South Point. And I just want to ask a question this morning. That's how I want to start. So we're in this scattered church series, but before we get into any of that, I just want to ask this question. And my hopes for South Point is that we're a community of people that gets comfortable both asking and answering this question. Now, this question doesn't get asked a lot, uh, specifically when it comes to Christian communities, and I'm not really sure why, but for some reason we just don't really ask this question very much. I actually don't think I've ever been asked this question when it comes to the 20-plus years that I've followed Jesus. And the question is this, where are you in your relationship with God? Where are you in your relationship with God? Like, if you had to do a real self-evaluation, how would you rate that relationship? Are you thriving right now? Do you find yourself amazed by God and overwhelmed by his grace? Do you find yourself just like needing to share it with other people because you're so excited because the love of God has just absolutely leveled you? Like, is that you? You're hungry to read scripture. You're hungry to worship. Are you struggling right now? Maybe you're struggling to see God, struggling to feel him. Maybe you're hurting right now, wishing that you could be spiritually healthy Again, maybe things were good, like really good at one point, but now they just feel stagnant and it's hard to like maintain that spiritual fire. Maybe you're struggling to even want to pick up the Bible right now, struggling to believe the words that we sing in here on Sunday mornings. Maybe some kind of sin or struggle just has a grip over your life right now. Or maybe you don't have a relationship with God. Maybe you did once, but you don't even know if you'd consider yourself a Christian anymore. Or maybe you've been coming to church for years with a friend or spouse or family and it's just never really sunk in. You've never made the decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you can answer all the questions and the Bible questions and you know the right things to say when Christians talk to you, but you don't really know if you'd identify as someone who follows Jesus. Or maybe you're here watching online and you're just like completely skeptical about all this. You don't know if you could ever believe this. Maybe you're just waiting on me to say something you don't agree with so you can say, see, I knew it. So where are you in your relationship with God? Like, can you imagine if we could just be honest about that? If we got comfortable asking that and we didn't feel the need to pretend and there wasn't pressure to look or act like anything specific, I I think it would change things. I think it could help push our community forward. I think it would bring us both closer to God and closer to one another, and so you have my permission to ask other people at South Point this question this week, even if that person is me. But can I just tell you something that I know to be true, no matter where you fall on that spectrum or where you are in your relationship with God, whether things are going great or you're struggling or you don't believe, can I just tell you something I know to be true no matter where you are? God is for you, and God is crazy about you, And you are loved far beyond anything you could ever imagine, whether you grew up loved or you've never felt loved, that God loves you so deeply that it surpasses any type of love that you've either experienced or never experienced. And God knows you completely, like knows all your deepest fears and your regrets and also knows all of your dreams and greatest triumphs. 
God knows the way you view yourself, and he knows the way you view the world, and he knows the way you view him. And regardless of any of that, he still loves you so much that he was willing to come and die on a cross just to give you an opportunity to have a relationship with him, that he died for you even if you decide you never want a relationship with him. He died even if it was just to give you a choice. The creator of the universe loves you. You are fully known and fully loved. And so we're hitting this turning point in the book of Acts this morning because what's about to happen is we're about to get a full introduction, and we're going to witness the conversion of a man who wrote more of the New Testament than the rest of the other authors combined. And this man's sole mission from God was to share the truth that I just shared with you to the entire world, that God is for you no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done. God is for you, that there's no distance, there's no sin, nothing can stand between you and the love that God has for you. That was not only this man's message, but it was the story of his life. And if you don't know who I'm talking about by now, his name is Paul. Now Paul, if I'm being honest, is number two only to Jesus when it comes to the impact they've had on my spiritual life. I find myself drawn to the writings of Paul in the Bible. I find myself drawn to his writings about struggling with sin. I find myself drawn to his writings about how he so desperately needs and clings to God's grace because he knows that he's not a good person. I find myself drawn to how Paul recognizes that if it wasn't for the amazing and seemingly irrational love of God that he would be completely hopeless. And so this morning we get to meet this spiritual mentor of mine and whether or not you know much about him, I hope that as we read his story, that it gives you an even deeper and fuller understanding of this amazing God who makes himself available to everyone. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning, starting at verse 1. If you have your Bible, if you don't, you can use an Acts journal, or we have the words up on the screen. But Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1, and we're going to read about Paul's conversion. A conversion so significant that pretty soon God is going to change his name. And so as we're about to read about him, his name is going to be Saul. He's going to go from Saul to Paul. And as we read about the story of his conversion, I think there are a couple of things that he can teach us about God. So Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1, but let's pray first. God, we just, I'm just amazed by the way that you love me. I know that I am a hopeless person. I know that I'm not a good person. I struggle and I have my own failures and shortcomings. And if it wasn't for your amazing grace that I have no idea where I would be. God, I pray as we open up your word this morning and we read about this radical transformation and conversion of Saul that, God, I just pray that it resonates with our hearts. I pray that it gives us this deeper picture of who you are and how you work and what you desire for our lives, God. And more than anything, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, that it draws us to a place of submitting and committing our lives to you so that you can be glorified. God, speak through your word right now, I pray, and I trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1, it says this, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if, if he found any belonging to the way, belonging to Jesus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, there's something you need to know about Saul. And that is that Saul was not a bad guy. 
at least not by the standards of the society that he lived in. I mean, you kind of have to think about things from Saul's perspective. Israel, as a nation, they had this history that was plagued with turning their back on God. They would turn their back on God, and then they would suffer for it, and then they would come crawling back to God with their tail between their legs, essentially. It was this vicious cycle. God would deliver his people, and then they would turn their attention to something that wasn't him, and then they would suffer because they were, had walked away from him, and then they would come back. And this happened over and over and over again. And so if you're a part of the religious elite, as Saul is, and you start to see God's people having their attention turned away from religion as you understand it, it's got to feel kind of like deja vu in the worst way. And so you're going to stop at nothing to put an end to it because you're not looking for God's people to suffer again. And so Saul is on this mission to put an end to this new radical Jesus movement. And this is what the text says. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise into the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. We're going to pause right here and we're going to look at the first thing that Saul's conversion reveals to us about God. And that is God determines reality and truth. God determines reality and truth. Now remember Saul was not a bad guy by the world's standards. The same way that a lot of human beings, Christian or not, would not be considered bad people by the world's standards. You hear that? By the world's standards. Hang on to that for a minute. Now Saul fully believed that he was doing the right thing. But then he encounters Jesus for just a few moments and all at once he's on his knees declaring Lord. What you have to understand is that religion as Saul's culture understood it, it was this system of moral discipline, trying to live morally and then being cleansed when you failed to live morally. It was all about trying to be a good person based on God's law. And I'm not going to take a shot at my Catholic brothers or sisters, but this is very much the same way you see the Catholic church operating today, where your standing with God completely depends on either behaving righteously or seeking to be forgiven time and time again when you fail to live righteously. But the major problem in a belief system such as this is that the way God functions in this belief system is that God functions as the person who sets the standard for righteousness at the beginning of time and then judges people's attempt to be righteous at the end of time. But for the other 99.9% .9 of the time, he's either not present or passive unless he's coming to punish people to remind them of his law. But you see, what Jesus accomplished when he died on a cross was not simply creating a new way to live or not even just creating a pathway to heaven, but more specifically what Jesus was doing on the cross was he was creating an opportunity for intimate, ongoing community with God that lasts for eternity. And it's not about morality. It's not about being a good person. It's about community with God, a community with God that not only grants us life 
and love and hope and fulfillment, but a community that also sanctifies us and makes us holier as we spend more time with him. And this new way of relating to God is really only possible when two things happen. The first was Jesus dying on the cross and then raising back to life again to make this ongoing community with God even possible in the first place. And the second thing that has to happen is a person has to submit to God because of what Jesus did and then commit to making Jesus the foundation of their life. And I think sometimes we downplay what that commitment actually looks like But the truth is, this commitment to God is significant. This is not a small thing. Because the truth is, this commitment to God, it requires your old ways and your old desires and your old pursuits. It requires all of those old things to be put to death in favor of Jesus. It's not just mental belief. Mental belief isn't enough. The Bible says in James that even demons believe and fear God. That's not enough. Your life has to reflect Christ, which means that if Christ is truly the foundation of your life, your life will look different. And if your life doesn't look different, then that's your red flag to check what's going on in here. You make this decision to commit to God, and that means you're no longer in charge of your life. You're no longer the captain. You're no longer the master. You're no longer God. Instead, you've made the decision to believe that the goodness of God is far more significant and substantial than the goodness of the world, which means when your way of understanding and your way of living doesn't align with God or it clashes with God's way, what it means is that you're committing to surrender to his way and leave your way behind because you you trust that his way is better. It doesn't matter whether your hope's placed in some skewed version of religion like Saul's was or if your hope is placed in the things of the world or your hope is placed in some political party or your hope is placed in some social movement or your hope is placed in another human being surrendering to God means hitting your knees and declaring God there is literally nothing better than you and so I am laying everything else down everything else has become secondary to seeking after you and part of what that means is that if this book declares that something in your life needs to change, that it means you're seeking God's help to help you change it, and you're not jumping through mental hoops or loops to try to justify why it's okay to keep living the way that you're living. But understand that this isn't behavior modification or moralism. This is surrender to God, surrendering to Him and His way. Surrendering to God is at the core of it. Because if you're someone who says, man, I'm going to stand on the promises and the word of God and I'm going to build my life around that, except in this one area of my life that I don't really know if I agree. Well, if that's you, I don't know how to tell you this, you you haven't surrendered your life to God. It requires everything. And you might say, well, that's, that's not the way I was taught. Well, you were probably taught wrong. It says in Jeremiah 17, 5, it says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord, meaning you can't, you can't let your relationship with God depend on a human being. You need the word of God. You need to be opening up this book and reading for yourself. And if the only interaction you're getting with the creator of the universe is by what someone else tells you and you're depending on someone else to lead your relationship with God completely, you're setting yourself up 
for failure. Or you might say, man, that's not the way that I feel in my heart. Well, your heart's wrong. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This, is, this, this means you literally can't trust the way that you feel. You have to match everything that you're feeling up against the word of God, which means if you're not reading the word of God, you're depending solely on your feelings and you are setting yourself up for failure. Or you might say, well, that way of living and following God, that's not really practical in the world that we live in today. Well, the world is wrong. Second Timothy says, understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so if that is your standard of living and you're trying to match up to this standard and basing your life on what the world says, you're setting yourself up for failure. I think it's kind of crazy the way we try to barter and negotiate with the creator of the universe. Kind of crazy to me. In one of his books, Pastor Tim Keller, who I drew a lot of my message last week from, Tim Keller gives this illustration. He says, the distance from the sun to the earth is 93 million miles. Now, can you imagine that that distance, 93 million miles, was measured by the thickness of a piece of paper, that if you use that standard, a sheet of paper is 93 million miles, then from one edge of just our galaxy, one edge of the Milky Way galaxy, one side to the other, would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And that's just our galaxy. And for reference, scientists suspect that there are likely more galaxies in the universe than grains of sand on the shores of our planet. And Tim Keller writes now, if Jesus Christ holds all of this together with just a word of his power, is that the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? You see, when you come face to face with the power and goodness of God the way Saul just has, you really have two options. You can either hit your knees and surrender to his reality, or you can turn your back and keep living in your own reality, but you don't get to do both. You see, Jesus is either Lord over all of your life, or he isn't Lord over any of your life. And so Saul hits his knees. The passage goes on, it says, now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight. 
and be filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And, he is, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So a lot going on in these verses, but what stands out the most is this radical transformation of what Saul is doing with his life of someone who goes from persecuting and killing those who would claim that Jesus is the Son of God, and now he becomes this person who is like a madman proclaiming it to everyone. Because of this abrupt and significant change in Paul's life, I want to focus in on that. And the second thing that we learn through Saul's story is that God determines the purpose for your life. God determines the purpose for your life, which by consequence means that you don't determine the purpose for your life. Now, I know that this is hard to wrestle with, and I know we don't speak this way a lot in the American church, at least. I think more often than not in the American church, the way God usually functions is we use God to help us make our dreams a reality. But the truth, and again, God determines the truth, the truth is that God has designed each of our lives to help him make his dream a reality. And what dream is that? That dream that God has is that God, his name would be great and his glory would be seen. God's dream is that his name would be great and his glory would be seen. And so God's dream for your life is that he would be glorified through your life so that through you, the world can see how great and glorious he is. Everything God does is for the sole purpose of making his own name great. If you don't believe me, I'll read some verses to you that talk about this and, and understand that as we read through these verses that I'm pulling this list of verses and most of my second point from a pastor named Matt Chandler. So he did all the legwork putting all these passages together. But when I heard this and I read through these, it was like this drop kick to my face in a good way, if there ever was a good drop kick to your face, but if you're unsure whether or not you believe that God's dream is for his own name to be great, I want you to check this out. Psalm 23, and I'm sure that most of you, even those who didn't grow up in church, know this passage. It says this, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but it's for his namesake. And so he, he leads me in paths of righteousness. He restores my soul, leads me beside still waters, makes me lie down in green pastures. All these things that God does is for his namesake. Elsewhere in Scripture, in Isaiah 43, it says, God created us for his glory. 
In Isaiah 49, it says God called Israel for his glory. In Psalm 106, it says that God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Ezekiel 20 says God spared his people in the wilderness for the glory of his name. In 2 Samuel 7, it says God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. God literally tells them, you are rebellious, stiff-necked people, but I'm going to save you. But you need to understand, I'm not saving you because you're awesome, I'm saving you because I'm awesome. Kind of sounds like the cross. 1 Samuel, chapter, or 1 Samuel 12 says God didn't cast out his people for the glory of his name. In John 7, it says Jesus sought glory for the Father in everything he did. In Matthew 5 and 1 Peter 2, Jesus says, do good works for the glory of his name. In John 17, Jesus asked that God be glorified right before he's arrested and sentenced to death. John chapter 16 says the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says everything you do should glorify God. Everything you do should glorify God. Did you catch that? Everything you do, glorify God. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. In 1 Peter 4, God tells us to serve in a way that glorifies him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says Jesus is coming again to glorify God. John 17, Jesus declares that his ultimate aim is that we see and enjoy God's glory. Habakkuk chapter 2 says that the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth the way that water fills the sea. I don't know if you've seen the sea, but it's full of water. God says the knowledge of his glory is going to fill the earth the same way. Then in Revelation 21, it says, when all is said and done and heaven meets earth and God fills all of it, that the sun is going to be replaced by the glory of God. What brings us life and light and growth and warmth will exclusively be the glory of God. And so everything in creation, in heaven and on earth, was created to bring glory to God, including you. That is your purpose in life. That's what you've been called to do is make his name great. And Saul just found this out. The other thing is your qualifications don't matter. When I tell you that I didn't go to seminary, I didn't train to be a pastor, I've always been socially kind of awkward and weird, I've always been selfish, I've always struggled with sin, I'm not a good person, and all of those things are true, but one thing that's becoming more clear to me is that God is going to find a way to be glorified through me if I'll just stop making everything about me and submit to him. And so God saves us by his own sacrifice and his own immeasurable grace. He chased after us when we weren't chasing after him. And then just like Paul, God reaches out his hands and says, look, I'm going to make much of me through you. Let's go. Don't worry about the rest. I'll take care of the rest. I'll make it make sense for you as you go, but you keep your eyes on me and I'm going to make much of me through your life. At the end of the day, we really only have two options, and that life can be about you or your life can be about God, but it cannot be about both. There's just not enough room in your heart and your mind and your soul to serve yourself and serve God at the same time. But let me tell you why it's good news that God's purpose for your life is to make his dream come true and not yours. First, because God's purpose for your life is to bring glory to his name, he is actively seeking to bring you immeasurable peace, hope, and joy all the time. 
Now, I don't mean temporary happiness or earthly blessing or any of the stuff that the world tries to sell us. What I mean is a peace, hope, and joy that endures through heartbreak, that endures through depression and anxiety, a hope, peace, and joy that endures through sickness and cancer, that endures through poverty and endures through loss, a hope, peace, and joy that endures even through death. God is seeking to make you an example of how faithful and powerful and wonderful he is so that the world can see how faithful and powerful and wonderful he is. You are a benefactor of God's dream. That's amazing news for each and every one of us. The second reason it's good news is that God's purpose for your life to make his dream come true instead of yours, the second reason that's good news is that the world doesn't revolve around you anymore. You're not the center of the universe anymore. And a great many of your problems in life likely come from the fact that the world revolves around you. You get mad and upset and angry because all we see is, is our life and these things that are happening to us. You hate your job probably because it's about you. I, I'm getting taken advantage of. I'm not being treated with respect. I'm not getting recognized. I'm not. Your marriage probably isn't what you want it to look like because your marriage is probably about you. I'm not getting satisfied. I'm not getting helped. I'm not being appreciated. I'm not respected. Well, the good news about God's dream is that you can take a breath and let all of that go because you don't have to be the center of the universe anymore. You get to rest and stop fighting so hard because it's not about you. It's about him and his glorious grace. And you get to rest in him. And you get to stop fighting so hard for your self-worth because your self-worth doesn't get determined by your effort. Your self-worth is determined by the God who is seeking to use your life to make much of himself. I'll finish here by going back to Paul. Paul who encounters the glory of God and immediately drops to his knees. Paul's reality and his truth are immediately replaced by God's reality and truth. What Paul thought was the purpose for his life is immediately replaced by God's purpose for his life. Now it's not easy and he suffers and he struggles. He spends time literally in the dark, alone, blinded but then Jesus pulls him out of the other side of it and he's this completely different person. And so in light of Paul, who we're going to spend many of the coming weeks reading about, I just want to ask you again, where are you in your relationship with God? And what's your move? What's your move? We're going to enter a time of communion here in a second to reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus, but as we do that, as you're holding the bread and the juice that represents his body and blood that was poured out for you, the broken body and blood of the Savior who holds the universe together, the Savior who knows you and loves you and died for you, as you take this, recognize that there's a decision to be made. And the decision is, do we continue living in our own reality and our own truth, or do we submit to the one who created all of it and created us? Do we continue to live as though we're the center of the universe, continue living to serve our own purpose, or do we fall to our knees like Paul did and surrender everything we have to the one true God?
And as you hold the elements, as you hold the bread and the juice, I want you to reflect on that. And before you eat and drink those elements, I want you to consider your decision. Where are you in your relationship with God? And what's your move? Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you are the one who determines reality and truth. And God, I know that your law is hard. I know that the standard that you've set is high, but what it really does is it gives us this picture of how amazing and holy and good you are. And you're not looking for behavioral perfection or this moral compass or this perfectly lived life. God, you're looking for submission. You're looking for us to submit to you and say, God, I'm not going to be able to get this perfect. I'm not going to get this right all the time. But I understand that what you offer is so much better than what the world offers. And so I'm chasing that. I'm pursuing that. And I'm leaving the rest of this behind because you're all there is. And God, I'm grateful that you're the one who determines the purpose in our life. That we don't have to work hard to try to make a name for ourselves. We don't have to try to work hard to save the world ourselves or to change things ourselves, but we have this promise in you that if we point the spotlight at you in our lives, point directly at you, that you will be able to restore and renew and fix and bring life to areas that never would have had them before, but if we only commit to you, we set our own priorities and our own pursuits aside and and favor what you have. God, I pray that as we take communion right now, as we're holding these elements of this bread that represents your broken body and the juice that represents your blood that washes away all sin. God, I pray that the weight of that just hits us right now. I pray that we're amazed by the fact that the Savior that holds the universe together by a word of his power would come and die for us just to give us an opportunity to say yes so that he could lavish his grace and his love over our life and we could have this relationship with him that lasts forever. God, I I know that there's nothing that we can do without you. And I pray that we're a community that don't try to do anything without you. We submit to you in everything that we do. And so, God, we commit the rest of this time to you right now. We love you. We trust you. We pray in your name and your name alone. Amen.